0: One of my favorite sayings that I often try to teach younger people in my family as they roll their eyes at me is Nikishchi mon le And it means, I am a proud Michif. And I think the more we say it, the more we'll believe it.
1: That's Russell Fayant, Michif language educator and our guest on Pekiu the Metis Culture Podcast, brought to you by the Metis Nation of Saskatchewan and Canadian Geographic. Welcome, Tan Tanshikia. I'm Leah Marie Dorian. I'm a Metis artist and writer living near Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and the host of Pikiyuke. Pikiyuke means come and visit, and on this series, we invite you to join us as we go on a journey exploring our rich Michif language and Métis culture. Tanshe. Tanshe. <laughs> over 10 episodes, we travel to Métis communities all over Saskatchewan, talking with Michif elders, educators, artists and cultural leaders, and learning about what they are doing to keep the Michif language and culture vibrant and alive for future generations. Ma Si, enjoy! Our guest today is Russell Fayon, originally from Le Valley Capel, Saskatchewan. Russell is a Michif educator at the Saskatchewan Urban Native Teacher Education Program in Regina. Russell has dedicated his life to keeping Michif alive by teaching courses on the language, culture, and history. Talking about Michif, Russell says, I believe it is the language of reconciliation. Because it incorporates diverse worldviews of settler society as well as the indigenous community in equal parts. Russell Fayant, thank you for joining us today.
0: Glad to be with you.
1: Russell, can you tell us a bit about yourself, where you grew up, and a little bit about your Métis heritage?
0: Sure. So maybe the best way to do that is is in my own language. Tanche, Russell Feant Ka, Egua Valley Kapelle de Torten. So, what I just said to you is my name is Russ Fayant, and I'm an instructor with the Saskatchewan Urban Native Teachers Education Program. And I'm a Michi from the Coppel Valley. And uh, for for maybe some of your listeners who don't know where the Coppel Valley is, it's a, a beautiful slice of southern Saskatchewan that basically extends from border to border.
1: It is. It's to me, it's just breaks the prairie up, Russ. You have such a beautiful homeland. You know, it's a special place. That's for sure. Absolutely. Can you share with us a little bit about your family? Like who spoke Michif and, uh, you know, are those speakers still in your family?
0: So... um Everybody that is basically older than me retains some level of mitzvah in in my family. Um, unfortunately, that because I'm not as, as young as I used to be, so unfortunately that means the people that do speak mitzvah in my family are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And um, I'm really the first generation to come out of the valley that didn't speak Michif, that had to, had to work to reclaim Michif. And uh, that has everything to do with, with urbanization and uh, my family leaving the own allowance on the Kapel Valley and, uh, you know, experiencing a lot of uh, racism and uh, assimilative forces and that sort of thing. But um, the people that, that I come from are descended from Michif buffalo hunters. And so we're, we're very much a, a buffalo hunting people. And we first settled the Copal Valley in and around the 1860s when many Métis people were leaving Manitoba to to escape, um, you know, incoming colonization and, and uh, racism and that sort of thing. And, and there were these, you know, particular groups of Métis people. The Métis community, as you know, Leah, is extremely diverse. And um, there were many Métis people who, you know, had land and had businesses in Manitoba. And they, they stayed there to fight that fight to retain their rights that they had fought so hard for in the Manitoba act but there was also these sort of freewheeling metis people and, and i call them the, the the midchiefs and they were people that um had spent half of the year out on the plains anyway even during the red river times so these were people that you know went on the buffalo hunt and um you know had had uh, paths or roadways that took them uh, from Red River all the way to the Rocky Mountains and, and from border to border. So um, my people were quite familiar with wintering spots or as, as we call them, even spots, places when during the winter buffalo hunt they could take refuge and, and have you know a source of fish and a source of wood and a source of water. And so for my particular clan, that was the Coppell Valley. And so it was quite natural for them when they left Manitoba and were looking for a new place to live that was free from colonization for them to choose a, a spot like Copa Valley. So that's a bit about where my, my people come from.
1: You know, I I totally see the the importance of having a space and a place to bond with. And I think with mm. Mitchev language, the land it's a land based, free spirited language. Yes, and to absolutely. learn it in that way, hey, it's so vital. Uh Russ, uh does your mom and your auntie Dorothy, do they speak Michif fluently?
0: Yeah, so I would say um my mom has lost quite a bit. Um I definitely remember her speaking a lot of it growing up. Um, but you know, when it when Metis people moved into the city in, in the 50s and sixties and seventies, often um there weren't a lot of other Metis people around for them to to keep that language. And so she um she has um I don't like to say lost. I I prefer to say taken. She's had quite a few, quite a lot of her language taken from her. Um, But my mom, who grew up with her grandparents and is sort of considered, you know, one of the younger kids in that family, um, when we look at the older kids, the ones that are in their 70s and 80s and 90s definitely have retained a large amount of Michif. And I'm constantly impressed when I go to the Valley that they still make the effort to speak that language and to retain that language and to get better at that language every day.
1: That's good to hear because it's so endangered. We both know that. It's on the World mm. Endangered Languages list. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And and um, I think we've really only got, by my estimation, you know, 10 to 15 years, I think, uh, for people of my age to take this language up and to start becoming fluent. Otherwise, what we're going to be doing is reconstructing an inauthentic version of Michif if we don't learn it from the speakers who currently speak it.
1: I, I totally agree. Now, you know, we also have cultural attached culture attached to language and being a, a midship person. Do you have any favorite midship sayings or cultural traditions that you want to share with our listeners today?
0: Yeah, I mean, i it's funny because when I was growing up, I wouldn't have uh, actually recognized any of these things as cultural traditions. I just sort of thought they were living. I thought everybody uh, had bannock and butter sandwiches that they took to school. <laughs> <laughs> I thought everybody knew what bullets and banes were and that sort of thing. But as I got older, uh, and of course, I still live in a city, uh, I I'm more and more aware that those things are special and unique to Métis people. So uh, I love to eat, and so I love Métis foods, and my, my favourite meal, of course, is Bullets and Bains, and ah.
1: uh, for, mm-hmm. your, for your
0: listeners who may not know what that is, Banes um, are similar to, I guess, what you would call beignettes in, in Quebec or in, in Louisiana. It's basically uh, a fried version of bannock, uh, which we love to sprinkle with sugar. Um, and Bullets is a, is a stew made from meatballs and potatoes and carrots and a roux and it's just stick to your gut food and i absolutely love it (laughs) Um, i think some of my other favorite traditions are just um you know, in michif we say, which means come and visit. And some of my fondest memories as a Métis person are visiting around a kitchen table. Uh, that's where stories are told, and that's where you you learn michif words, and um, you get to know your people's sense of humour. And uh, so I think those are my my favourite moments. Um, and then I think also I would just add that, um, and you know this as well, Leah, Métis people have... Um, a really deep connection to land. And so, even though I'm an urbanized midchief, I take every opportunity I can to get out onto the land to go and visit the area where our road allowances ex- existed a hundred years ago. Um, for me, that's really important to connect to a piece of land that, you know, my ancestors dug rocks out of and my ancestors dug Seneca out exactly. of. And, uh, you know, they blood, they had blood, sweat and tears into that land. And so, for me, it's, it's really important to connect to those places.
1: Well, you're with the Valley. There's just so much uh, opportunity because we do have land that we still have intergenerationally used, the Librette Metis mm-hmm. Farm. Can you tell us about um, your connections to that aspect of uh, the Metis community?
0: Sure. So, um, well, I never actually um, had ancestors myself who lived on the farm. Anybody who's from the valley or from LeBret will know uh, a family that has connections to that place. Um, and so just a, a bit of historical background, um, you know, during the, the 30s and 40s, Métis people were considered the poorest people of this province, um, largely because they had been disenfranchised from their land and that they weren't welcome in cities. And of course, you know, we, we also weren't allowed to go onto reserves and that sort of thing. So we were kind of, like, in this limbo in the 30s, 40s, and 50s of um, we were self-sustaining, but at some point, when you have a family of 20, you know how much fish and deer can you can you harvest That's to right. feed that family, and so we depended on labor and we depended uh, on jobs, and and sometimes we were excluded from those jobs. And so the CCF government actually came up with the idea to um, teach Métis people how to farm. And it was a way to get them off of the road allowances so that land could be clear for pasture land. Um, But it was also a way to sort of, um, you know, make sure that they weren't going to be, you know, the poorest people in the province anymore. So they developed these experimental farms and and one was placed in Labrette. And the concept was basically that Métis families would be selected um, and would be put on the farm and would be given farm instruction and would make a good living that way. Um, the piece, of course, that that was left out of that equation was that they weren't given land to farm. They were given skills, but they weren't actually given land. the The farm was a, a communally uh, settled place that was ultimately owned by the government. And so, while they learned a lot of skills there, they didn't necessarily, they weren't able to use those skills to enrich themselves. And a lot of those people ended up taking those skills and, and working for farmers, and you know, made a, made a good living. But it wasn't necessarily um, maybe what they had had in mind. But today, because so many generations of Métis people worked on the farm and had good experiences on the farm, you know, um, one of one of the old ones that I talked to, Joe Welsh, who, who had family on the farm, he always says, you know, moving to the farm was like, uh, day and night for Métis people, it was like moving uptown, right? Because yes, su- exactly. suddenly you had a house rather than a log cabin. And suddenly there were, um, you know, horse-drawn cutters to take you to school and to church and all of these amenities that didn't exist on the road allowance. And so the people that worked on the farm were sort of like, ooh, oh, you're working on the farm. <laughs> you're yeah,
1: really, it gave that infrastructure to the people, eh? And education. Absolutely. And you're right, skills training. It, for us just to make some local, connections. Green Lake, we've talked about Green Lake here. It's another twin to the Labrette project. And Duck Mm -hmm. Lake had another one too. So I'm so happy you're sharing that with our listeners about the Métis Farm projects. Yeah,
0: and and, um, I can't speak about the other Métis Farms, but I know the Labrette Métis Farm has it's quite derelict these days. There aren't, uh, you know, a lot of the buildings that used to exist have, have either been moved off or um, are sort of in a, a rough rough state. But it's the place that's important. And and so, you know, for example, my family reunion happens out on the Métis farm every year, even though, you know, people have to use outhouses and that sort of thing, because there's no running water. But just to be at that place and to share in those memories and to be in a place that is safe and welcoming to Métis people. And there haven't always been a lot of those places. So the farms continue to be important meeting places for sure.
1: Definitely. Russ, I wanted to ask you, you know, what does it feel like to not be able to like fully fluently speak Michif language today? How does that feel?
0: Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I've spent many years thinking about that question and it makes me feel extremely jealous and it makes me feel extremely angry that this language was taken away from me. And I fundamentally believe. That I will never be a hundred percent mid chief until I can speak that language, because there are understandings that are embedded in all languages. Um, that if you don't speak that language fluently, you will never fully get the jokes. You will never, you know, Very to be able true. to dream in, in one's traditional language, I think is uh, amazing. And so I'll never I'll never feel 100% my until I can speak that language. And it's taken me a long time to get over, you know, the bitterness of having that language taken away from me um, and sort of um, turn away from that bitterness and turn into action and start learning that language myself um, and also teaching that language.
1: Yes, you've been a leader for that. You know, Russ, I'm so proud of you because you're fearless today. You're such a role model for people like myself and others. Because, you know, I've always wondered, how did you get over those psychological blocks to learn and feel confident and just risk saying phrases and, and getting over those hurdles? Our listeners, some of our listeners are wanting their languages back. How did you get over that psychology and just jump in there?
0: Well, I I think first and foremost, I was given uh, an amazing gift as a 17-year-old graduating high school. And that was the gift of a Métis education through the Gabriel Dumont Institute. And as an urbanized mid-chief... you know, particularly, I think, in the South, um, we don't have a lot of centers where you can go and feel community um, in the same way that in the 70s and 80s, we had really strong friendship centers. Um, We we don't always have that today. And so what the Gabriel Dumont Institute offers urbanized chiefs like myself is a home uh, and a a safe place to reclaim your culture and to unlearn all of the dirty truths that, that people told you about your people and about your heroes and about your culture and just to Uh, to relearn what a what a rich place that we come from and so I feel incredibly fortunate that I had that experience to be a student and now an employee of the Gabriel Dumont Institute and that has been a massive motivator in uh, me wanting to to reclaim all these aspects of myself I think secondary to that um, connection to community is key you know my it's funny when I when I get taken out to the road allowances by my old people and they they tell me the stories of picking rocks and of making you know two dollars a week and and they tell these stories with smiles on their faces and you know I remember as a as a young naive person I used to say to my aunties and uncles and my mom "Well, like geez it sounds like you guys were exploited like (laughs) why, (laughs) why are you so happy about these stories and and they would say to me things like But we didn't know we didn't know any different and we never went hungry and we always had laughter and we always had community and we always had a home. And so, you know, I think as I matured in my thinking around cultural reclamation, I came to the realization that if these people who suffered 10 times more than I have ever suffered can continue to be productive and happy and focus on what really matters in life. Uh, community and culture and love and family, then I should probably take a cue from those people and uh, use that as motivation for my own learning.
1: Oh, I really appreciate grounding your, your learning in our, our community, you know, way of being. Mm. Russ, you work at Suntep and um, maybe our listeners don't know what Suntep Regina is all about. Could you give a little brief about Suntep, your role there and what you're doing in Michif language there?
0: Absolutely. I'm always happy to talk about SUNTEP. So SUNTEP stands for the Saskatchewan Urban Native Teacher Education Program, and it's a program of the Gabriel Dumont Institute. We have three SUNTEPs in Saskatchewan, one in Prince Albert, one in Saskatoon, and one in Regina, and I work at the one in Regina. Uh, I've been at SUNTEP for, this is my 15th year, Leah, Jeez!
1: Oh um, my goodness.
0: <laughs> it's crazy, eh? Um, Great. And uh, I teach. I started out teaching a lot of the Indigenous studies courses at SUNTEP, and, and took on the the Métis studies course, which I absolutely love. And uh, was tasked a few years ago. Um, you know, at, at SUNTEP we have small staff, so we we visit a lot and we talk a lot, and we're always talking about how can we make the program better. Um, and so one of these conversations sort of emerged with the idea of why don't we have. Uh, Michif, you know, Suntep Regina has always had a language component to it um, in its four-year Bachelor of Education degree program. Uh, but for the vast majority of our existence, our students have opted to take Cree or Soto because Mischief okay. was never offered at the university. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with Cree and Soto. Our people are traditionally multilingual and these were languages that they spoke, but they weren't our language. Um, so out of that conversation sort of came, well, I mean, if the university's not going to have a Mischief course, us, then I guess it's up to us to create one, and that's what we did. Uh, we worked with administration at the university, we worked with our allies in the Faculty of Education at the U of R, and we developed ourselves a of course. And at first, it was um, an in-class course, the way that you would traditionally learn a language, and we gradually learned through through continual conversations and through you know. Um, checking ourselves with our community that we needed to get out of the classroom. And so now what we've developed is a three-week Michif immersion camp that takes place at the LeBret Métis Farm. Um, And you mentioned when we began, Leah, the importance of place and learning. And so our old people really said to us, you need to get out of the city. You need to go where Michif is from. And that is places like the LeBret Métis Farm.
1: Absolutely. Uh, That's just a wonderful connection for Santa Regina. What a wonderful gift. Now, in your uh, curriculum, you know, ways of being Michif, how do you get your teaching philosophy um, in, transferred to the students, the Michif philosophy? What do you do specifically to get those ways of learning into your student body?
0: So it has everything to do with the old ones that we work with. And um, so I guess more than anything, I'm not a teacher in this capacity. I'm a facilitator. And my job is to bridge um, the Western trained students who are largely urbanized with the Michif old ones who um, have only ever learned and experienced Michif in a completely authentic way. And so my job through my curriculum development is to plan activities that allow for the old ones to step into the role of teachers and allow the younger ones to question some of the assumptions that they've received about language from uh, Western pedagogy and start to embrace a mitch of pedagogy, which has everything to do with relationality with, you know, uh, at the camp, uh, the young ones call the, the old ones aunties and uncles. And that's that's really important mm-hmm. in terms of establishing that relationship. Um, and then we, we, we really make an effort to do and to practice everyday things in Machif. And so our students are doing things like they're learning how to cook meals in Machif. They're learning how to perform a square dance in Machif. Um, they're learning how to put together a Red River cart in Machif. Mm-hmm. So I think all of those experiences make the old ones feel okay, like we can relate to this style of learning. Um, and it, it really helps the young ones to get over sort of some of their shyness and, and to embrace a Machif way of learning.
1: And it's a learn by doing. I love the cabin and the cooking in your reconstructed cabin. I was so thrilled with that way of visiting <laughs> and cooking. And you, you said Métis foods, they're, they're good for the soul.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> good for the gut and good for the soul.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, who are the elders associated with your Suntep program? Could you share a little bit with our listeners who's involved there?
0: Sure. So, um, my, my co-teacher, I would actually probably call her the lead teacher because she speaks more much than I do is Irma Klein. Uh, Uh, and Irma is, um, she works in our office and, um, she's an auntie of mine and we've known each other forever. And, um, she she speaks Mischief quite well, and so she has been my co-developer of curriculum and is also really one of the lead teachers at the camp. Um, her partner, Larry Fayant, who is my uncle, um, and speaks Mischief fluently. He is at the camp uh, most days as well. Um, we also have Roy Putra, the, the famous Roy Putra. If anybody's ever been to Librette, you know who Roy Putra is. He owns an antique store there and is completely fluent in um just knows every every little corner of the road allowances and whose family came from where, and is just an amazing historian. Um, we also have uh, a married couple from Yorkton Um, Ed and Harriet St. Pierre, uh, Mm -hmm. who are very well known in the Saskatchewan Métis community and are very ardent activists for language and have been for, I would argue, decades. Um, They come to the camp uh, for about four days. Uh, We also work with a gentleman from Regina named Alex Pelshe, who is completely fluent as well. And occasionally we'll have guests come in. And what I found with the first year that I did this camp... um, you know how Moccasin Telegraph is, Leah. I mean, the people of Breton, <laughs> the La Breton knew we were coming. <laughs> and so, you know, throughout the camp, old ones would just sort of wander in and be like, oh, what's going on here? And, and you know, then we would sort of get them teaching on the Kimooch before they even knew it. Eh? Uh-huh. So
1: <laughs> yes, it's called the walk-in. <laughs>
0: exactly. So we, we have quite a few walk-ins, and I suspect that we'll probably have a few more this year.
1: Oh, I just love that. How have the students reacted to this experience? That's a field camp. You know how have you had feedback from your student body about what it means to them to go through your camp?
0: Yeah, so we, we've we had lots of feedback from them, and we also have a, an action research project attached to the camp that is the the principal principal investigator for that is Dr. Melanie Bryce at the U of R. Um, and uh, it's really, really important for us that we get this right. We're in the beginnings of developing this camp, but we want to make sure that we're getting it right. And so the, the research project has been instrumental in helping us to analyze feedback from both students and the old ones. Um, it's interesting, the first group that we did this with, it was... Um, uh, six of my students who um, largely female, largely urbanized, very young. And when we told them the concept of camp, uh, there was a look of fear in their eyes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I can imagine.
0: Mostly because we were we were telling them things that they weren't used to hearing, which is you know this is the style of learning that you will be engaging in, and it was unlike any style of learning they had experienced. And so, uh, you know, we told them that we were going to be driving out to this this place every day, and we'd ultimately be spending you know three nights there at the end of the camp. And when we got there, they they looked at the outhouses and said to me, "What's that?" <laughs> And we we conducted the camp in, in uh late May, early June. And for Southern Saskatchewan, that is prime wood tick season. And so it
1: really is. Um,
0: you know, they were covered in ticks the first couple of days and had a little had a little moment over the ticks, and we, you know, we laughed at that as well. But so what's interesting, and, and I guess what I'm trying to prove by setting this all up is that, you know, by the third day. All of that had fallen away. These people that had come to the camp so incredibly terrified and shy and apprehensive to interact with the old ones because they were afraid that they would offend the old ones in some way. By day three, God, they were laughing. They were joking. They were using their their uh, morning and afternoon breaks to go and visit with the old ones of their own Mm -hmm. accord and to try out new words and phrases they had they had spoken. And all of this was completely different from what we had seen when we conducted the class uh, in class the previous year. Um, we didn't see that level of confidence. We didn't see that level of authentic interaction with old ones. And so that had everything to do for me with being on the land. Um, and the students said the same things in, in in their comments about, you know, we didn't expect to learn as much as we did. And uh, we feel connected to this place, even though some of them aren't really from that place. They, they felt connected to that piece of land and and to the knowledge that the old ones shared and so um the transformation of learning and and the personal transformations was just amazing Mm,
1: it's all we ever want for our young Mm. people to grow russ we're winding down here and i just want to uh acknowledge you you're one of the first in your family to get a post-secondary education how does that feel
0: um it feels like a huge responsibility um and I, I think that it's only sort of started to to feel like that in, in as I get older. I would say when I first graduated it was almost surreal. Um, like, wow, I, I I have a degree and I have a career and you know it, we don't often have those narratives of, of educational success in our family backgrounds. And I certainly didn't. And so I had no idea what to expect. And you know, I had no idea that one day I would be a homeowner and, you know,
1: have a, exactly. Have
0: a, and and I still pinch myself some days as I'm driving down the road, Leah, that, wow, mm-hmm. I have, I have a car I own and I have yes. a career and mm-hmm. I never take it for granted. Every day I'm grateful for, for the immense gift that I was given. And now I, I very much see it as a, a responsibility and I remember seeing an interview with Tyler Perry one time and he said you know um, your job when you when you blast through that door is not just to keep it open it's to tear that door off and build a ramp so that others behind you can come
1: oh beautifully said Russ on your biography it calls Regina Oskana and it says kaaskataki. I'm not sure how yeah. you say that. I know askana because it's bones. It's, um,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, askana katsasteki. So it's, um, it's a phrase that uh originates in Korea, of course, and mm-hmm. it literally means the place where bones are piled up. Um, and you know, for many years, for anybody that's from Regina, you know, that our exhibition for many, many years was called pile of bones and, uh, that's Regina's nickname. And it's, it's something that people often like laugh at and think is cute. But when I hear pile of bones, I think of something really sad. I think of, uh, you know, proud plains hunters, such as the Cree and the, and the Michif people who, um, went from literally hunting bison to hunting their bones once they had been um, you know their numbers had been harshly reduced on the plains through colonization and through the railroad and through settlement so um, um, I, I think it still sounds much nicer than Regina so <laughs> and it's the name of the traditional name of this place Oscarkanaa Kasastiki. so uh, I continue to use that.
1: Oh, I'd love to hear that. We also are reclaiming the name, uh, Gestapananik for Prince Albert, you know, this great gathering place. So we are also in the process of that, acknowledging the original names of place. So Mm, thank you for sharing that. Well, Russ, we're going to close with a question here. Reconciliation and revitalization of Michif. What does that look like to you in the future? What would you like to see?
0: Well, if I could wave my magic wand, um, Michif and and I think um, several other Indigenous languages that are far spread across Canada would be official languages, official status. Uh, we would have Michif immersion schools. Uh, we would have my, my nieces and my nephews who are in elementary school would be speaking Michif on a regular basis. Um, that we would be able to have conversations Fluent, meaningful, authentic conversations with this last generation of fluent speakers before they pass. I think that would be that would be my dream. And so, you know, I I want to see certificate programs in Machif. I want to see immersion schools. I want to see uh, I I don't want to see another generation uh, hide this language away.
1: I, I'm with you on that. Russ, thank you for joining us today and inspiring us to pick up the language portfolios, the language spirit, sit with our old people again, and, you know, just be who we are authentically. Mm. Thank you, Russ. Thanks
0: for having me, Leah. And it's always a always a great pleasure to visit with you.
1: Hi, hi. Massey That's it for this episode of Picky ok come and visit a Métis Nation of Saskatchewan and Canadian Geographic podcast. The QK is produced by David McGuffin of Explore Podcast Productions. Our opening and closing theme music is by Métis Fiddler, Adam Daniel, and me, Leodorian. And if you enjoy this podcast, give us a five-star rating or write a review. Also, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and tell your friends about us on social media. I'm Leah Marie Dorian. Until next time, keep up the mitten. See you later.